But I think isn't that the reality of what this life is? Uh, as we just read uh, in First Peter, um, we have this this living hope in Christ, our inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven by the risen Jesus Christ. And in this we rejoice, and we've been rejoicing this morning, though, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And I know some of us uh, in the midst of rejoicing and celebrating um, are at the same time grieved by various trials. That's the world we live in, and, uh, and that's what Habakkuk is addressing, this world of pain and suffering, and how do we go forward. And so let me just invite you to turn uh, in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. Um, we want you to have God's Word open in front of you. Um, want you to be able to see His Word, not mine. Uh, I have nothing of value. Uh, I don't bring any wisdom uh, here this morning. Uh, I bring this. Uh, I heard this great quote this week about true preaching, and I wish I had memorized it now. Um, but the effect that it is not the preacher's job to open up the Bible and preach his message, but for the Bible to open up the preacher and preach its message. And so that's my hope. Not that I would use God's word to preach what I say, um, but that God's word would use me to preach what it says. Um, so let's, uh, let's turn our attention to God's word. Uh, again, that's Habakkuk 3, uh, end of uh, the Old Testament and those little minor prophets, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Uh, if you get to the New Testament, you've gone too far. Um, so often, as, as we talk with others, as we interact in our day and age, um, we throw out these phrases that sound nice and, uh, and I guess they are a, a kind gesture, um, but really when it comes right down to it, the, the words that we say are actually quite useless. Um, if you think about it, something as simple as, have a nice day. It's a nice gesture. I have no, I'm not saying we shouldn't say, have a nice day, um, but it doesn't actually practically help the person toward that goal. It doesn't actually give them anything tangible or practical. Um, same with phrases like, get well soon, feel better, don't worry. Um, I mean, it's a nice sentiment, and I understand what people are saying, what we're saying as we use these phrases. But sometimes in seasons of pain and suffering in particular, um, we need more than that. We need actual help. H- how do I move forward? How do I feel better? How do I not worry? What do I do to get from here to there? I need more than sentimentality. I I need action. And uh, I hope as we've gone through the book of Habakkuk, that's been my goal to to make this practical, to help us see um, some action coming out of this. Um, But this is where this book itself actually makes that turn. Um, To this point, there has been a a conversation between Habakkuk and the Lord. Uh, Habakkuk uh, saying, Lord, this is evil. Look at the wickedness in Judah. These people have turned their backs on you. They've walked away from you. And he's praying, God, judge them. Don't let this carry on. And, of course, the Lord responds, oh, I'm, I'm about to. I'm about to do a work in your day that you wouldn't believe if you saw it. Uh, and that work is that he's going to bring the Babylonians in, an even more wicked, evil nation, and use them as his tool to punish uh, the people of Israel. And uh, all the while, he's saying to Habakkuk, trust me. I'm sovereign over this. Live by faith, Habakkuk. Um, but that conversation's over now. 
That ended at the end of chapter 2. And, and what we have here, moving into chapter 3, uh, is a song uh, and a prayer. Um, and, uh, and, and this, again, is where this book kind of turns to the practical because we can see Habakkuk's mind at work. Um, we get this insight into his heart uh, as he lives by faith. And, and all the way down uh, the last verse uh, in, in this section, verse 16, um, he says this, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. That's it. That's Habakkuk right there making that move from fear to faith. And so our question is, how does he do it? In the midst of his turmoil and his doubt and his fear, um, what does he actually do to turn his heart from fear toward faith? To come to this point of quietly waiting. And that, and that, that word there, uh, quietly waiting, it, it's more than just simple waiting. It's not just passing the time. He's not just tapping his fingers. Um, but it's a, it's a term of peace. He has tranquility. Uh, he has a deep sense of peace that's unshakable. So how do we get there? Um, in spite of the fact that the world is falling apart around us, in spite of the fact, fact that, that things aren't going the way that we wish they would, that things aren't going uh, how we hoped they would, how do we come to peace? And so we see here as Habakkuk fights for faith that gives him peace. And, and we're going to dig into that uh, and how he does that. Um, and so, again, I think getting beyond just saying, live by faith, getting beyond just saying, uh, have peace, but, but how do we do it? Um, what tools do we use? And, and that's what we'll see as we walk through Habakkuk 3. Um, but before we do that, would you uh, go to the Lord with me in prayer? Father, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. God, thank you for uh, this facility that we have uh, to meet in, to be able to gather and open our doors wide and say, come, come and worship this great God. Lord, we pray that you would use this building uh, for the glory of your name, for the building up of your church. And Father, start it now uh, as we turn to your word in humility um, to sit under it. God, give us soft hearts that we would see your truth and be changed. Father, I pray for um, my words this morning, God, that they would be faithful to your word, that you would, um, that you would use me beyond um, myself, beyond my own ability, um, for the glory of your name. God, that we might be uh, transformed more and more to the image of Christ, that you would help us um, to live by faith, to be able to wait quietly uh, for the day of your rescue. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, chapter three here is both a prayer and a song. And, and I say that because that's what Habakkuk tells us. Uh, it starts off saying, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Um, 
So that's pretty clear. Um, but the outline of it is very suspiciously song-like. Um, there is um, musical notations like the word Selah mixed throughout there. Um, but also, if you come to the very end of the chapter, the end of the book, at the end of verse 19, it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. So there we go. This this prayer was intentionally written to be sung by the congregation of Israel, uh, led by a choir with stringed instruments. Josh, we good for that for next week? Get some stringed instruments and we can sing this song together? Oh, sorry, I should have given you a warning. Um, points out, I think, the significance of congregational singing. Um, it's not a new thing. It's not something that we came up with. Um, God instituted this from the beginning. The church, his people gathered around singing about who he is and what he's done and singing that truth um, buries it down deep in our souls. That's why it's so important that we're so careful about the doctrine that we sing. Um, but moving forward here, you'll notice it says, um, according to Shigianoth, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. And you're wondering what on earth is that? Welcome to the club. Um, Nobody knows. Uh, commentators don't even guess at this. Um, it, it's another one did, but we couldn't even figure out what the word meant. Uh, I was laughing with Joshua with that on Wednesday. Um, who knows? It's a musical notation, maybe, or or a kind of poetry, um, but it's a it's a Hebrew word that we don't see anywhere else, and uh, so it's kind of a mystery to us. Um, but. Looking at this song, um, this is how I think it's kind of structured and laid out. Not everyone agrees on this. It doesn't change the interpretation, but I think it makes it interesting. Um, I think verse 2 is the chorus. Um, I think this is the, the repeated refrain, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath remember mercy. I think that's the, the chorus of the song. And then I think as it goes on, you'll notice probably in the right-hand margin of your Bible, the word Selah shows up three times. Um, I think those are marking off the verses. I think each verse begins with kind of a title sentence that ends with Selah, and then the verse follows. And so um, you have verse 1 from uh, chapter 3 down to verse 8. Uh, and then you have verse uh, three or verse two of the song, starting in verse nine as the opening sentence, and you'll see that Selah there at the end of verse nine, uh, down to halfway through verse 13. Uh, and then halfway through verse 13 picks up again through to verse 15. Uh, and then I think verse 16 is like the bridge. Um, it, it, in our songs today, the bridge kind of breaks out of the normal um, verse-chorus repetition, um, and, and it repeats and kind of builds on the theme of the chorus, and I think that's what's happening here. Uh, verse 16 that we read already has a lot of the similar themes from the chorus, and, uh, and I think it also serves to bookend this song. It, it begins and ends kind of in the same place. Um, which leads me also to believe um, that verses 17 to 19 uh, are not part of this song. I think they're a, a, a micro-psalm all by itself, and uh, there's enough in there. We're going to leave that for next week. That'll be our last sermon on the book of Habakkuk, and uh, spoiler alert, I'm going to be away for a couple of weeks, uh, and then we're going to dive into James together uh, into, uh, into the fall, so looking forward to that. But let's begin to break this down. Let's walk through this, this song, this prayer together, and, and, and see how, how is it that Habakkuk moves his heart from fear to faith? What does he practically do? And, and how can we apply these principles in our own lives as we seek to live 
by faith. And the first thing I think we see in in the chorus here in chapter 2 is remain in prayer. Remain in prayer. Um, As I said, verse 2, I think, is the the chorus. Uh, I think it's repeated throughout the song. Um, And and he starts off um, expectant, but also fearful. Let me read it again, just so it's fresh for us. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And so, I think this whole thing is a prayer, but specifically, this is very clearly. Um, and he begins saying, Lord, I've heard the reports of your work. I've heard of what you've done. And, and that ought to kind of trigger us to remember back to, to verse 5. God warned, remember, I will do a work in your day that you would not believe if told. And now he's saying, oh, Lord, I remember your works. I remember the things you've done in the past, and, and I fear. Um, I think the idea here is... is Partly scared fear, but, but at least partly awe and wonder. I stand back and in awe of who you are and awe of your works. And then he makes these three requests. Here's his prayer. First is, Lord, revive your work. Revive your work. He says, in the midst of the years, revive it. In, in, in our day, again, in the middle of my time, God, would you revive these works that you've been doing? Would you do it again and let us see it, God? Act, move. The second request, uh, Lord, reveal your work. He says, in the midst of the years, make it known. Reveal it to us. Show us. And, and I think he's asking here, um, it's somewhat of a parallel from the first uh, request, but it's building on I think he's asking, help us understand. Help us to see what you're doing. Help us to know what you're up to. Um, Habakkuk has already admitted that, that he doesn't understand God. He doesn't understand what he's doing. It's perplexing. There's a lot to take in here. And so he's praying, Lord, do it. Bring your work and help me understand. So often we try to judge God by our standards. We set our principle, this is what's right, and then we accuse God of being wrong, or we tell God that's not what you ought to do. Habakkuk comes with humility, and he says, God, it's me that's wrong. I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. This whole thing with you using the Babylonians to judge Israel, this seems troubling to me at best, but God, that's my problem, not your problem. Reveal it to me. Help me understand. That's a beautiful model for prayer. And then finally, his third request, um, Lord, remember mercy. In your wrath, remember mercy. He understands. The people of Israel deserve God's wrath. That's where he started his prayer in chapter 1. Saying, God, judge these wicked people. It's evil. The justice has been, has been thrown out and there's corruption and, and deceit and idolatry everywhere. God, judge them. But now he prays, Lord, even in your judgment, show mercy. God, don't wipe us out completely. Don't be too harsh. I think Habakkuk is, again, here including himself. He's understanding that that aside from God's mercy, none of us escape the Lord's judgment. We, we all deserve wrath for our sin. And so there's an element of, of personal repentance here. God, show mercy. And he asks God, God's gentleness and grace, even in the midst of his rightful judgment. 
So that's, I think, the first just practical tool we see here as we observe Habakkuk as he deals with his own heart. Um, Living by faith in the darkness happens as we remain in prayer. And and again, I think this is the lead-off chorus and the repeated throughout. I think this is the most important um, piece right here. Remain in prayer. Ask the Lord. Be at work. God, do something here in the midst of of my day, of my trouble. God, would you change hearts? Would you bring justice? Would you fix this? Ask the Lord, help me understand. I don't get it. I don't see what you're doing here. Lord, reveal it to me so that I can see what's going on and be at peace. And ask the Lord to be merciful. Come humbly in your own repentance, recognizing we all come uh, with our own sin seeking grace and mercy. Pray, pray, pray. Draw near to the Lord. When trials come, when darkness moves in, um, when, when life is upside down and painful, um, we have a choice. And we either move in toward the Lord or we move away from him. And which way you go makes a massive difference. Um, suffering has a way of amplifying things, of just turning up the volume of what's in our hearts. Um, You ever notice that? People who have gone through the deepest suffering, those who have gone through real deep darkness, some of them come out as the people who are so gentle and so kind and so peaceful and, and, and such neat depth of character. And others come out so bitter and so angry and so cruel and so calloused. Suffering sends you one way or another. And and one way to be sure that we're moving down that first path is to remain in prayer. That's the path toward that growth in character, that depth of faith. It's drawing near the Lord through suffering, not, not pushing him away, but pulling him close. And by the way, this, this deepening of faith is, is a tool uh, to help us deal with sufferings. We lean into the Lord, um, but there's a bit of a feedback loop here because that's also what that struggle produces in us. As we lean into God, he uses trials and tribulation in our lives to build us, to, to strengthen us, to, to push us deep in our faith. That's one of the reasons that God brings suffering into our lives. And James 1, uh, 2-4 is so clear on this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking in anything. That's what we're after. As trials come and God tests us and works us and molds us, this is one of his tools to build depth and steadfastness in us is through trials, making us complete and mature by growing us in prayer through these hard times. And so it's in times of real suffering and struggle that our our prayer lives go deep. We begin to understand what it really means to cry out to God to not, not just kind of show up ho-hum with our grocery list, but to desperately need him. Uh, and he draws us in on that. We need that. We need to remain in prayer. Um, pray, seeking the Lord himself, seeking that depth of relationship with him, trusting that, that he uses that pressure of trials to, to take our stony hearts and, and push them into diamonds, into something of value. 
So no matter what, first we remain in prayer. And then verse three um, starts into the song. Um, The first two verses of this song, I think, kind of play out together. And what we see Habakkuk doing, this next practical tool, is he fights for faith. First he's uh, remaining in prayer, but then he remembers the past. He remembers the past. He says, Lord, we've, we've heard of your works in the past. I've heard of the things that you've, you've done. And then he begins to recite some of those things. This is what God has done. Uh, let me read the first verse, um, verse 3 through verse 8. God came from Timan and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth and he took and shook, looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kishan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers and your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? So he writes of the glory of God on display. This song opens saying that God came from from Timan and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Well, what on earth is that about? Um, just full disclosure, I don't know these things. I read this verse for the first time and went, what does that mean? You got to dig in. Um, Well, those are locations south of Israel down into the Sinai Peninsula toward Egypt. And and I think what's happening here, Habakkuk is remembering the Exodus, how God brought the people of Israel out of slavery and brought them through the wilderness of Sinai to the promised land. It was the display of his glory. He showed his, his wonder and his might, and, and it's this grand display. It says his splendor covered the heavens, and his earth was, the earth was filled with his praise. Uh, and then verse 5, it speaks of pestilence and plagues. You came from Egypt with pestilence and plagues. It's the ten plagues against Pharaoh. And then verse 6, the Lord measured the earth, uh, measuring and, and weighing through scriptures often used as God preparing to judge. Um, he's, he's measuring out his wrath. Um, Kashan and, and Midian, down in verse 7, um, those are both nations through which Israel would have come as they came from, uh, from Egypt into the promised land. Countries that would have seen what God did from afar and trembled in fear. Can you imagine? God destroyed Egypt, this great superpower, and now they're coming our way. They're, they're shaking. The first verse uh, of this song uh, ends in verse 8 with a question. God, was your wrath against the rivers? Was your indignation against the sea as you rode on your horses and your chariot? Uh, God, was it the the rivers and the sea that made you so angry? Um, Pictures God as this warrior, and, and it's this rhetorical question. Obviously not, but it doesn't answer it, not yet. The second verse of the song uh, starts in verse 9. Let me read uh, the second verse for us. You stripped the sheath from your bow, 
calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people for the salvation of your anointed. So the first verse of the song is a little bit more passive in language. The second verse gets God a little more directly active. Uh, He took out his bow from its sheath. He uncovered it. And he called for many arrows. Um, Again, it's building on this idea of the the warrior God is coming out. He's coming to battle. Um, God is wrathful and is coming in judgment against sin here, uh, I think Habakkuk remembers the flood. He's remembering the great flood. Kids, when the flood was over and Noah came out of the boat, what did God put in the sky? What? Do you ever think of the fact that it's a rainbow, like a bow and arrow? That's what it is. It's God's bow. And he says, I'm not going to use this bow again on the earth. I'm not going to flood the earth again. That was his, his promise. And so when we see the rainbow in the sky, that's, that's God's bow and arrow hanging up. Habakkuk is remembering when God used that bow, when God took it out. And he says, uh, the splitting of the earth with the rivers and the mountains writhed, and the raging of the waters swept on, the deep giving forth its voice and lifting its hands on high. It's flood imagery. Um, Genesis 7-11 speaks of the the fountains of the deep bursting open. Uh, It talks about the, the mountains being covered with water. That was the Lord. It was his act of judgment against the wicked in Noah's day. The whole earth had become corrupt and God brought justice on the wicked and and he rescued Noah and his family, his anointed, his chosen ones. He acted in wrath and with mercy. And so Habakkuk remembers the Exodus when God had wrath on Pharaoh and the Egyptians and rescued his people. He remembers the flood as God had wrath on the people and rescued Noah. Uh, And then verse 11 jumps, I think, to a new topic. Habakkuk is remembering the battle where the sun stood still. Anyone remember that one? Kids, who was leading Israel in that battle? Anybody remember? What? Joshua. Yeah. Joshua is leading the battle, um, leading the people of Israel into war against the wicked Amorites as they moved into the promised land. And Joshua 10.13 says, At the Lord's command, the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation, that was Israel, took vengeance on their enemies. God literally stopped the sun and the moon and through Israel he brought judgment on the Amorites. He protected his chosen people and he wiped out the wicked. He's remembering the mighty works of God from the past. He's he's rehearsing them again in song, in prayer. Uh, And then verse 13 answers the question from the first verse. Was it because the Lord was angry at the rivers? Is that why? Was he mad at the sea? Is that why he acted? No. No, verse 13 makes it clear. um, What we've already seen, God acted to save his people. He acted to save. The Lord acted in in judgment and wrath against the wicked in order to save his chosen people, his beloved, his his anointed. Habakkuk is wrestling with fear and uncertainty, 
faced with wickedness around him uh, in order to save his, trying to hang on to his faith, waiting for God's judgment. And he moves his heart from fear to faith. He fights for faith by intentionally remembering the, the past mighty works of the Lord, remembering what the Lord had done through the years. Time and time again, he showed himself faithful, brought judgment on evil, rescued his people. Remembering is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. The Psalms are filled with these, these songs that just repeat the works of God. This is what he did. This is what he did. Isaiah 46, 8 and 9 commands, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Remember the things that God has done. David, in, in Psalm 143, 5, as, as well as many other Psalms, he says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the works of your hands. He's, he is remembering. It's such an important discipline for us as believers. If you're having a hard time trusting the Lord and trusting what he will do in the future, you need to, need to remember. You need to rehearse what he's done in the past, who he has been. Remembering in Scripture is not a passive thing. It's not just kind of a, oh, I haven't forgotten. Um, it's active. It's intentionally calling to mind and, and putting, putting the pieces together. Um, the word remember is actually a really weird word if you start picking it apart. Um, remember. What are the members of our body? Our, our fingers and our hands and our arms and our legs. And so we need to remember. What's the opposite of remember? It would be dismember. Um, our thinking has become dismembered. It's become pulled apart. And we need to remember. We need to, we need to put it back together again. We need to connect these pieces. We need to go back to the things that God has done, both things in Scripture that we see historically and the things in our own lives where we've experienced and, and, and connect that to my reality today. Make those two work together again connecting the consistency of our God and his faithfulness. And that just doesn't happen naturally. We don't do that casually. That, that happens as we sit down and intentionally meditate and rehearse what God has done. We tend to trust our hearts. Uh, we tend to let our heart do its own thing. And, and, and if our heart says fear, we fear. And if our heart says doubt, we doubt. And, 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 and we listen to our hearts, and, and we shouldn't. We speak as though we're helpless against our feelings. Well, I'm afraid, and, and, and what am I supposed to do about it? Nothing. I just, I am afraid, but, but that's not the case, and that's not healthy. If you listen to your heart consistently, you're going to be in trouble. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If you're thinking, oh, no, Disney lied to me. Yep, Pinterest too. Um, our hearts are not helpful. Our hearts do not lead us in good directions. Don't listen to your heart. Talk to your heart. Talk to your heart. Psalm verse 42, uh, chapter 42, verse 5. Listen to what David says. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Who is he talking to? Himself. Heart. Why are you bummed out? Why are you doubting? Why are you down in the dumps? That's not right. That's not where you should be. Trust the Lord. 
Trust the Lord. Don't feel downcast. In verse 6 of of Psalm 42, the next verse, he, he goes on to say how he does this, the mechanics of it. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan, of Hermon, from Mount Mitzar, I remember who you've been in the past and the works that you've done. He sits himself down and says, why are you afraid? Why are you doubting? Why are you fearful? Remember what God has done. Remember who he is. And the more we do that, uh, the easier it becomes, right? Use the illustration a few weeks ago about Habakkuk testing his faith, how, how he was willing to, to really put it to the test. He wasn't scared to, to question God and to press hard on him, believing that his faith in the Lord would be proven and confirmed. And so he, he puts God to the test. And uh, in the illustration, he's like a man who's, who's testing his deck, right? New, freshly built deck. And he doesn't just kind of step out and say, oh, look, it, it held me. See, it's a strong deck and jump back into the house. No, he, he steps over and he stomps on it. And he proves it. And he he puts his weight on it. But once he's done that, and once he's walked out back and forth onto that deck five times, ten times, a hundred times, a thousand times, he no longer questions the strength of it. He doesn't doubt. He just, he walks right out onto that deck without even thinking about its construction or its strength. It, It doesn't even cross his mind. Why? Because he remembers He remembers the deck has held him before over and over again. He remembers the time they bought the the new freezer and had to come in through the back door over the deck and it held him and the freezer. It's strong enough. And if it held all of those times, surely it will hold again. The more we know and remember what the Lord has done throughout history, the more we mentally take stock and tally up God's faithfulness time and time again, the easier it becomes, the more peace we have because we've walked down this road before. This is, a, this is a familiar path and I remember this curve in the road and I remember last time when I, I doubted that God would provide and I had this, this dark season of, of fear and then God came through again. We'll come out, we're gonna come around that same bend. God is faithful. So we remain in prayer and we remember the past and then we rest in the promise. Um, the third verse of this song um, starts halfway through verse 13. Uh, so let me read uh, verse 13b through to 15. It says, You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. This is my favorite verse of this little song. Uh, it's a fantastic verse. Um, you ever noticed how many of our songs today, as the verses progress, uh, they end up talking about the resurrection of Christ or our eternity with him in glory? Um, that's this verse. It, it's triumphant. Um, it's, it's eschatological. It, it's looking forward to the eschaton, the last days. Um, this is the final triumph of the Lord on display, and, and it's glorious. And I realize it's written in past tense um, as if it's already happened. I think what we have here is called the, the prophetic perfect tense, to get technical. Um, they're talking as if it's perfected, as if it's actually happened um, in, in a prophecy of something that's going to happen. He's so certain that it will happen that he says it as if it already has, uh, as if he's there in the future looking back at it. And, and the prophets frequently do this. 
And he says, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Now, uh, in the Hebrew there, there's no definite article. It's not the house of the wicked or the evil one, but rather you crushed the house of evil. And I think that's a significant difference. It's not an evil person, not an evil nation, even an evil leader that's being destroyed. It's evil itself. This is God overthrowing and destroying all evil. The imagery from verse 15 uh, picks up on that. The, the raging waters being trampled over by horses. The sea, in particular, the storms of the sea. Israel often used throughout its history as, as imagery of, of chaos, of, of suffering and confusion in their world. Uh, and, and God is trampling over that. Jesus uses this same imagery. When he calms the storm, when he walks on the water of the sea, he's making a declaration of his power over evil. And so here, back in verse 13, it's not just defeating, uh, but completely embarrassing and shaming the house of evil, stripping it from thigh to neck, laying it bare, showing it for what it is. If you've heard me preach more than a handful of sermons, uh, I suspect you know exactly where I'm going from here. Um, there's, there's one verse that just rings in my mind. Anybody know what it is and want to shout it out? It's Genesis 3.15, right? It's the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first gospel. Here it is again. It shows up constantly through Scripture. On, on the very same day that evil entered the world, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, when, when suffering and pain and wickedness first became a thing in this world because of sin, because of their rebellion against God, on that very day, God promised to send a rescuer. Speaking to the serpent, he said this, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's going to be an epic battle between the offspring of evil or the, the house of evil and the offspring of the woman. And here how's, here's how it's going to end. He says to Satan, um, this offspring of the woman who's now identified as a he, a single man, is going to, infl is, is going, sorry, Satan is going to bruise his heel. He's going to inflict pain. He's going to injure this offspring of the woman. But he will bruise, and, and it's, it's not the same word from Habakkuk 3, but that word in Genesis 3 is often translated crush. He will crush your head. God is saying one is going to come, a man born of a woman who will destroy evil once and for all. It was promised in Genesis 3. Habakkuk 3 is picking up on that and looking forward to it. Again, I would argue that every page of the Bible is picking up on this promise and pointing forward to Christ or pointing back to Christ. This is it. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. It's Christ on the cross. His heel was bruised. Sin and death inflicted pain on him on the cross. He was wounded there. But in his death, he conquered death. And I love this. You, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of the enemy warriors. He used death to kill death. He turned its own weapons against it. You see, Satan has no power of his own. Right? 
The name Satan literally means deceiver. The name devil um, is, uh, sorry, speaks uh, uh, of him as the accuser. And that's it. That's his game. That's his entire power, so to speak, is to deceive, to tempt people to sin, and then to accuse them before God. And as he accuses before God rightly, that is very powerful because God is just and God is righteous and God will punish all sin. But when Jesus died on the cross, he took on himself that judgment, the judgment that we deserve. For all those who would trust in him, he took that eternal death that we deserved and he paid it. God's wrath poured out on him on the cross. And that's why Paul can say, 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So death is not a problem for us without sin. It's just just moving from the temporal to the eternal, right? Without sin, that's not a problem, but, but sin is a problem. And sin is a problem because of God's law. God's just and righteous character. It it demands a penalty. However, Jesus gives us the victory by satisfying the law of God, by paying all that it demands. And so now as Satan accuses someone who's put their faith in Jesus, when he says, look, I saw them, they did this and this and this and this, and he's right, but the law has been satisfied. The penalty's already been paid, and so Jesus stands up and says, no, that slate has been wiped clean, and that accusation means nothing anymore. Death has lost its sting. It's a lion with no teeth. Jesus settled the score. So we've been rescued out from under the power of sin and death, but this promise also looks forward to, to the final victory of Christ. Right? He's not done yet. This is not the end. This is just the preliminaries. This is just stage one. He's rescuing this people out from under the reign of sin and death so that they are no longer part of that house of evil and then one day he will come back and he will judge that kingdom of evil. Once he has rescued the full number of those out of that evil kingdom, once he has once for all brought in his sheep, he will destroy evil and with it pain and death and suffering and all that comes with it. So Jesus rescues us from evil. We live in an age of superhero movies, so let's, let's, let's put that spin on it. Let's see this through the, the superhero lens, right? This is, this is Captain America parachuting in to the middle of Nazi Germany, and going around through the Nazi military camps, through their army, and saying, join me, renounce Nazism, renounce all of this, and, and, and come to me, come on, on my team, leave them and join me. And, and once he's satisfied that all who will listen, that all who will come to him have come, he, he reveals his secret weapon and with a push of a button obliterates the German army, the, the Nazi regime completely wipes it out and, and it's happily ever after, right? And so we live now in that day that, that Jesus has come and he's calling out to all who will hear, leave, 
Leave your sin behind. Turn away from that kingdom of evil, the kingdom that brings pain and suffering and death, the kingdom that is at war against God, this this kingdom that all of us are born into as we walk in sin and rebellion against God. He says, leave it and there will be amnesty. There will be complete forgiveness for all who will join me. Join me and there will be freedom. And so right now, we're, we're, we're on Jesus' team. We're part of his kingdom, part of his army, but we still live in the middle of this enemy camp, this enemy that we used to belong to. But that day is coming when Jesus returns, when he is satisfied that all of his sheep have come in and he will put an end to that kingdom of evil. Satan and his demons will be thrown into the lake of fire along with all those who have not repented and turned to Christ. It will be over, done with. Jesus will reign in perfect peace. No more evil, no more suffering, no more pain. We find peace, we find faith in the midst of the darkness as we rest in that promise, as we hold on to the hope to come, that hope of final and future salvation. And so we remain in prayer and we remember the past and we rest in that promise. It doesn't make this life a walk in the park. It doesn't make all your troubles disappear. I don't care what any smiling preacher will tell you. This life is hard. There is suffering. There is pain. Habakkuk himself continues to say, my bones tremble, my my legs are so weak I can barely stand, and yet in the middle of that, I will hope in the Lord. I will wait quietly for him. That's what it means to live by faith in the darkness, trusting in him in the midst of the pain and the suffering, knowing that that end will come, knowing that he will always be faithful. And Jesus actually gave us a very tangible, practical way to, to remember that and it's communion. I invite the worship team to um, return and, uh, and lead us. Um, in communion, we come back to the Lord. We, we come back to clinging to him, walking closely with him. And we rehearse, we remember the great things that he's done in the past, the greatest thing he's done in the past, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we reconnect that with my reality. That because his body was broken for me, I have life. Because his blood was poured out for me, I have eternity. That that God has no wrath left against me. It's been paid for on the cross of Christ. And in a sense, we, we act out our faith in that promise. Eating the bread and drinking the cup, saying, this is my life. This is my sustenance. This is my food and drink. This is what I need. As we look forward to his final return, as we hope in him. And so uh, that's why we're commanded to do it often because we need it often, because we need to be reminded again and again. And we should constantly be remembering what he has done, constantly look forward to what he will do. Um, So would you stand? Let's sing together and, uh, and then I'll return and we'll take communion together.